Well, thank you. I, I love the fact that in our new ministry, we get to be in a lot of different churches, and I'm always excited when I'm in a church that has people with the skills we just saw that choose to use them for the Lord. And lots of times, it's, it's younger folks that are desiring to serve the Lord that way. It really adds a lot to the worship that we get to be a part of. I'm grateful for it. Well, thank you, Dr. Love. Certainly thankful to the university, to Dr. Marriott as well, for the opportunity to be with you today. The Marriott's are, are familiar to us because they were first introduced to us by coming to our church in Chesapeake, Virginia, where every other year we go to the Outer Banks. It's only about an hour and a half away to suffer through that location for a couple's retreat around Valentine's Day. Now, having just arrived here recently and seeing what spring in Wisconsin is, I can see why you'd want to leave Wisconsin in February to go to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. We think it's cold down there. They probably thought it was balmy. But it was a blessing to meet them and learn about the college, which I was really unfamiliar with at that time. And interestingly, God would bring us back here many years ago with our youngest daughter, our youngest son. She was praying about coming to Maranatha. And although God would lead differently, we're grateful for the work that he's doing here. And now, these many years later, I have my oldest son and his family serve as missionaries in Cambodia. And he's in the MDiv program here. And he has relayed to me, he started it while they were home on furlough and continues his work from a rural area there, just about the excellence and really the academic rigor Now, that may not be a word that you like very much, but I can tell you he's excited about it. He is really enjoying it. And so I'm grateful for technology and how that can really be a blessing um, to us. Well, I'm the new general director of Armed Forces Baptist Missions. And it's a great opportunity for someone who served in the Army for 26 years as a helicopter pilot and then continued to work with the military for another 14 years to get what we'd say in military parlay, a change of orders last year. And when we thought we were going to be doing grandpa duty and grandma duty all over the place, God said, I've got more things for you to do, new things for you to do. And so now we have an opportunity to be involved with an organization that is trying to reach our military with the gospel and with discipleship. And we do that by planning churches, by setting up Christian servicemen centers as ministry of local churches, and by trying to help churches that are near bases that want to reach those folks and really sometimes aren't quite sure how to do that. I don't know how many of you may have military associations in this audience here, whether it's family, friends. I I believe, do you still have ROTC at all, either aligned with the school or not at all, huh? That's okay. That's okay. Um, But... I can tell you that if you're here and you're studying for the pastorate, there's a good chance that you'll find when you get to a church somewhere, even if it's not near a military base, that you're going to have some military folks in it. If you are a school teacher, you're going to have students that may come from military families that are there for a couple of years and then they're gone. Or whether you're some other kind of professional, a medical professional um, or I don't know, business owner, the chance of you interacting with military is really quite great. And they need to hear the gospel. Dr. Love gave really a great insight here 
having been in the military right after Vietnam, when we were dealing with still some of the effects of race riots that everybody thought was going to tear the military apart because they were forced to, to integrate, or the drugs that came out of Vietnam that were ravaging the force in those days, <clears throat> or for me, a policy that, that was new to the military and a challenge, don't ask, don't tell, that was requiring the military to do some things that they didn't want to do. It really is a, a, a test tube of sorts. It's a crucible almost because there's all kinds of other pressures that come in there. And those folks need help and they need hope. And so that's what we're all about. We're here all day today. We do have a display set up over there. Come by and talk to us. If you've got questions about why military ministry, how military ministry, or you've just got a friend that's serving and you want to find out if there's a church near their base, or you want to find out how do I relate to this person, how do I interact with them, we'd love to talk with you. So please come by and see us. Well, if you have your Bible, turn to a familiar missions passage, Matthew chapter 28. And before you completely dismiss it and think, really, is that, is that where we're going to go today? I, I hope you'll, you'll stay with me for the time that we'll have to spend in God's word together. It is a, a very familiar, but a very needy passage, I believe. And part of the reason I believe that is because Matthew chapter 9 and verse 37 is still true. I mean, the population continues to grow on our earth, and the Christian population, you probably could contend, that's gotten bigger too. So there, there are more folks, more Christians out there, more witnesses out there. There are good churches that are equipping believers every day, equipping for the ministry. That's what Ephesians reminds us the pastor or teacher is there to do. And then there's schools like this one and others that are, that are helping to prepare you for what God has for you in your life, whether it's in the secular world or it's vocational ministry, whatever it might be. And yet with all that going on, I believe we can still say very clearly that the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. You might think, well, you're, you're that guy, you know, you're, you're now a missionary, you're that guy. But I can tell you from all those years in the military, I was a missionary when I was in those formations. And you're going to be a missionary of sorts as you go out there because you're really not so much a missionary as you are what Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8 tells us we received power to do. That power came after the Holy Ghost was here so that we might be witnesses, witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. There may be people like me that are dealing with the uttermost part of the earth and maybe the Samarias and, the, and, and in some of the Judeas, but most of you are going to have an opportunity to be dealing in Jerusalem all your life, and some of you much greater than that. So I believe it is worth taking a look at. So follow along with me as I read in Matthew chapter 28, the last five verses, where we read, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. 
I'd like us to consider this passage in light of a message I have entitled, What's My Role? Let's pray briefly and then just ask God to continue to bless our time. Father, what a privilege it is to be your servant. What a privilege it is to have your word. What a privilege it is to have your indwelling Holy Spirit. God, with so many gifts, will likely come many opportunities. To whom much is given, much will be required. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us as we look at so familiar a passage to perhaps consider it anew. And, Lord, by your Spirit, speak to each heart, I pray, for your purposes and for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. How many folks like team sports? Yeah, I came in here this morning and I was like, whoa, look at all the banners. And you guys are all about sports here. When we came up here with my son and daughter, my son was about as interested in college as you might be as interested in a project you're working on right now that's due in a couple of days. You know, it, it has to be done, but yeah, I'm not sure if I really want to focus all the attention on it that's required. But he was very interested in the fact that you guys had a baseball team here. That really got his attention. He wanted, he wanted to learn more about that. And you think about team sports. The idea of team is important, right? It takes more than one person to accomplish what needs to be done. Recently, I met a young lady who's a basketball player here. And so if you want to use the example of a basketball team, it takes five players, right? And let's just say for the sake of illustration that on one team, they have got an All-American. That person jumps fast, jumps higher, runs faster, shoots better, has more skills than anybody else in the country. And so feeling a little bit full of themselves, a little bit cocky, says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take on another team of five by myself, and I'll, and I'll beat you. And you know, as it starts out, maybe if they've got the ball first, they do manage to get all the way down to the other end, and nobody can stop them, and they score. And maybe they can get back up to the other end in time to deal with the onslaught that's coming. But very soon, five players, even of marginal skill, on a team will overcome one, no matter how good they are. It's that way with so many things where team, team efforts are important. And you know, every team, as it comes together, it's got a purpose, doesn't it? It's got a mission, as we say in the military. And as you look around here, you can see that some of the teams likely accomplished maybe the complete mission they had that year, the complete goal that they had that year. Maybe some came very, very close, and, and uh, so they were, they were runner-ups or whatever the case may be. And even if you're not on a, a team like that, I mean, think of something as simple as get it going home at Christmas time, and maybe your family has waited because they aren't going to do the Christmas setup, the tree and the decorations, until you get there. And so it's a task for everybody to pile into, and maybe you've got a favorite part that you get to do, but everybody works together to get it done. It's a lot of fun. We love to do that in our family, because working together as a team is special. Well, as we consider Matthew chapter 28, and the end of Matthew chapter 28, I think it's very, very important for us to look at it from that perspective, that it is a team mission. Because sometimes when you look at this and you consider what you understand Christ is asking us to do, you go, I, I'm, I can't do that. <laughs> I, I don't feel like I'm up to that. And sometimes we feel like we're the only one that's out there trying to do that sometimes if we're seeking to be faithful in it. Forgetting 
that even in those cases, we don't do anything spiritually by ourselves, do we? We at least know that Christ is going to be with us as we approach that very difficult task. And the tougher the task, the tougher the team you're playing in a sports example, the tougher the mission, as I would say, from a military perspective, then the more focused we need to be, the more aware we need to be of those who are with us, working with us to accomplish what needs to be done, and keeping our eye on that prize. Now, I know this is a busy place, and this is a busy time. Some of you are probably trying not to think about a project that is due later this week or is due before the end of the semester. Spring break probably seems like it was years ago, right? I I, I was trying to figure out why they call it spring break here. And I came to the conclusion last Sunday morning when I got up and it was wind chill of six degrees in the church we were at, that they call it spring break because you're going to leave here and go somewhere and look where a place where it's spring, right? Because if you look in Webster's, I don't think it says it's snow under the definition. I think it says short sleeves, birds singing, flowers out there, green grass, right? But when it comes to tough missions, I've learned, even in a secular perspective, that there really are two mindsets out there, two. And they're both shown to us, I believe, in the scripture here. And that is that there are doubters and there are doers. And I'd like to look at the doers first and then come back. The doers really are introduced to us in the last couple of verses here, right? Action words. Any of you teachers out there that understand grammar know all about parts of speech? And even if you don't, you know, you know the difference between a suggestion and being told to do something. And there isn't any consider. There isn't any contemplate. There isn't any decide for yourself. It says, go, ye therefore, and teach. And perhaps you know that the word teach there is even different than the word teach that shows up down in verse number 20. It it literally means to make disciples. So we're talking about telling them the gospel, and then when they've received it, coming alongside them and teaching them and helping them to grow. And then baptizing them. And then, of course, in verse number 20, teaching them again. And I think sometimes we, we think of this task as really something that we pay somebody else to do, we pray for somebody else to do, we expect somebody else to do, especially in the go arena. We fail to think about the fact that going is as much heading down the street here, whichever street it was, that has a nice-looking little coffee shop at it kind of place college students want to hang out if someone else is buying the coffee, right? Maybe go is Culver's and talking to somebody there. Maybe go is something that occurred while you were on break and you were around family and friends and you need to talk to them. But go is as much a local task as it is a global task. Many of you will likely serve in great churches in communities around this country. And as a missionary, I appreciate the fact that churches love to get our prayer letter and hear about it, and and sometimes they'll text me or they'll email me back or uh, rarely call me, but give some kind of feedback. They like to hear about what God's doing. Maybe you've read those. Maybe you think that's really neat. Maybe you like to talk to missionaries for that reason. 
But I can tell you as a missionary, someone who's out there, very, very dependent on you who are here in those churches, serving, praying, in some cases giving. The health of where you are, the indications of the activity of what's going on where you are, is vitally important to me. I want to hear that you care about souls, that God is working where you're serving, that people are turning to Christ, people are being baptized, because you're holding the ropes, and if the folks who are holding the ropes are going under themselves, what help will they be to me? And so it's very, very essential that you be involved in this task that Jesus presents to the disciples and let others know what God is doing. C.T. Studd, the missionary, some have referred to as, as the cavalry of the, of the missionary corps, a term I can appreciate, because he was fearless. I mean, he went places in, in his day that nobody went, China, India, and Africa. Most would go to one and be, be scared for what they might experience. He gave up a huge inheritance. He just gave it away so that he might be completely dependent upon God. This was his observation about what I was just sharing about. He said, the light that shines the farthest is, shines the brightest near home. Think about that. The light that shines the brightest shines, or shines the farthest, excuse me, shines the brightest near home. You will be an integral part of what God is doing around the world by your own activity, not just because you give to faith promise or whatever your church might do, but because you are personally involved in it. Now, you can support others. I understand that, and I appreciate that. You certainly can pray for others. And you can be involved in the teaching. You'll be neck deep in that, I hope. I don't know what you are thinking about related to your education and what you're receiving here. All six of my children went to, to Christian University or Bible College. And every one of them came away better equipped to serve the Lord. It just happens. It's part of an investment. You may think it's just kind of unfolding us magic how God's doing it. I can tell you the faculty and staff here is praying for it, is focused on it, because they believe in what God is going to do in and through you as you leave here. And you may be thinking, wow, that's a lot to ask of me. And it is a lot. It is, after all, called the Great Commission, right? But you need to remember it's a team sport. You're not the only one. And even if you feel like you're the only one, remember what Christ says at the end of verse number 20, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. I dare say everybody in here at some point has felt alone. It's a hard place to be, especially if you're serving the Lord and you feel alone. And Jesus understands that perspective. He understands it even in the context of these scriptures because he's talking to some disciples who've been through the ringer here. And now they've got a few minutes with their Lord again. And he's reminding them because he knows he's going to leave. I am with you always. And sometimes we just need to wake up in the morning and remind ourselves that God is with me. Maybe as you prepare for finals. Maybe as you leave here and serve in some kind of capacity this summer that stretches you at a camp or an internship or maybe even a job. Jesus will be with you. 
But now I'd like to back up in the passage towards the beginning of it and look at this other group of folks because I think it's instructional. And that is the doubters. We're told here that the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee. That's what they were supposed to do. If you back up in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, there's been an earthquake. Jesus has risen. Mary and Mary went down to see the sepulcher. It's not, Jesus isn't there. He's arisen. Praise the Lord. And they, the, the angel tells her, go, head back to Galilee. That's where he's going to go. And they meet Jesus themselves, and they actually see him. And they head back. And Jesus does that. And as that's happening, the guards, who know they're in deep trouble, head, as you know, to the chief priests. They're going to relay what's happened. I can't imagine how difficult a task that would be in those days, as you've likely, you may be aware, that's a death penalty for them. And so they go to the ones that are going to probably rat on them and get them in trouble first, and that's the chief priests. And the chief priests, of course, realize they're in deep trouble because Jesus was who he said he was. And so, as you know, they create the narrative. You know, we think spin doctors are pretty new in the media. Spin doctors have been around for a long time. And so their narrative is, the storyline is, they came and stole the body. Look at me, look at me. They came and stole the body. You understand? Repeat after me. They came and stole the body. And here's a large amount of money to help you remember that. Go rehearse that. Go tell that to everybody you know. And as you know, Scripture even tells us the Jews to this day still believe that. And it's in that context that he's here with the disciples. And it says in verse number 17, they saw him and they worshipped him. In my mind's eye, I really try hard to understand what that must have been like. I mean, I can't. I can't because I have the prophet of, of all of Scripture. I can read this account as many times as I want. I can understand it in a broader perspective. But if you had spent three and a half years with Jesus and you had watched things unfold in the end the way that they did, if you had fled from where he was, afraid and in hiding. And now, now, the same love that you saw unfold all that time in the lives of individuals to large crowds on a hillside, that same love is being expressed to them by fellowship with them personally. Those who knew him best, those who were closest to him during much of his earthly ministry. And they knew who he was. They knew who he was. They worshipped him. Can you imagine? We, 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 try, to under, we try to practice worship. I, I, I really try hard to concentrate as, as much as I can as, as, we're, as I'm singing, as I'm considering, as I'm listening to music, really trying to contemplate God and the message and all that. But I dare say, if you're seeing Jesus in person, for the first time after you thought he was dead, this is a pretty exciting time of worship. This is a pretty exciting time of life. And yet, in the midst of all that, we read the next few words. And some doubted. Some doubted. You know, it reminds me that everybody struggles with doubt. Everyone does. 
It doesn't matter how long you've been with the Lord, serving Him. It doesn't matter how mature you might think you might be. There will be times, very likely, when you will deal with this struggle of doubt. And he's offering this in the context of preparing to unveil for them the very task that they're left here to do, the very task that we are here left to do, a tremendous task. And it says that some doubted. Now, we don't know how many did. We don't know a lot more about why they were doubting exactly. You could, you could speculate. I mean, is, is the rest of it going to unfold the way he said? Did I even understand some of the rest of what he told me? Because I'm not sure I really even realized that this was going to happen the way that it did. So maybe that's part of why they're doubting. Maybe, maybe the word has spread like wildfire of what the chief priests are doing. And now they're going to find themselves very much face-to-face against these authorities who in the past had had to deal with Jesus. And Jesus could read their minds, never mind give them an answer that they couldn't refute or even respond to so very, very often. But now they're going to have to do that themselves. So maybe, maybe that's part of why the doubt is there. We all deal with it at different times. Sometimes our concern has to do with the object of what we're trying to place our trust in. Last couple of years have been kind of interesting for us in life, even for you as young people as you've watched unfold this, these circumstances in our country, in our, in our world, really. And you, if you're like me, maybe there are some times you, you kind of scratch your head and go, who can I trust of the experts, of the science, of, of those who would offer their, their version of what's going on and what I ought to do? And sometimes you can get really cynical as a result of that. And it can capture your attention so completely that you're not paying attention to something that you can trust in. You're focused too much on what you don't trust. And as we get into even important parts of our life where we have to make a big decision, we're involved in something really important, maybe some of you aren't even quite sure yet what it is you'll do with the degree here that you're studying. That's a big decision. Who do you trust? Who do you talk to? Do I trust myself and what I believe God wants me to do? How do I respond to that? In this particular case, the focus very clearly is Jesus. They're worshiping him. They're with him. And yet, some doubt it. Some doubt it. Now, I don't, Scripture offers us other opportunities, examples of, of these kind of emotions. You know, we, we have one that we refer to as doubting Thomas. We're in John chapter 20. He was one who doubted and had to see it and experience it in person. We're even offered something more serious than that in the example of Peter, where he went beyond doubt to the next step. He was even willing to deny Christ. Because that's where doubt can lead sometimes. Now, not all doubters are deniers. And in an audience like this, I would say it's unlikely that any of you would ever be at the position where you would say, 
I, I, I deny Christ. I, I just walk away from it. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't believe it. It's not real. I'm not one of his. That's not where most people find themselves. So when you read Matthew chapter 10 and verse number three, where, 33 where it says, But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my father. We say that's not a problem. I would never deny Christ. The challenge is the verse before that, verse number 32 of chapter 10, where it says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my father. For most of us, it's not a denying problem. It's a confessing problem. And why would we not do it? Because we're doubting. We're doubting. Maybe we're doubting our ability to answer a question we might be asked. Maybe we're doubting whether they'll even listen to what I have to say, whether they'll care about what I have to say, whether they'll just make fun of me or, or just insult me or worse. There's a lot of reasons why we can allow ourselves to doubt when we're faced with something so important and so challenging. And yet I have found that most of the time when I deal with doubt, and maybe this has been your experience as well, it is because I am considering that situation, I am trying to deal with that situation as Kevin. I am trying to think my way through it. I am trying to figure out what I'm going to say to that person that I need to talk to and I'm not involving God as much as I need to. Now, I don't know how much you've been around people who are doubters or what you think of doubters. I was in the military for a long time, and uh, there is a military mindset out there, I can tell you, and that is that you will accomplish the mission at all costs, all costs. And so when you have a doubter, you don't have time for them. They're a liability. And so oftentimes they get marginalized. You may have time later to go back and deal with them. You may not. They may just get pushed to the side and that's where they stay. And you take those who are ready to go and execute the mission and you move forward with them. It's kind of harsh. And yet I think that's lots of times, sometimes if we're not careful, even in churches where people are struggling and they're doubting, we just, we just stay away from them. We move them off to the side. What did Jesus do? I mean, think again about where we are. He's risen from the grave. He's with them in person. They know who he is. And they're worshiping him. What's going through his mind? In in the flesh, what would be going through my mind is, really? Really? I I, I told you I was going to rise from the dead. I rose from the dead. I'm right here with you. You know who I am. You're worshiping me. You know who I am. I'm the son of God. What's wrong with you? That's sometimes how we respond to doubters, but that's not what he did. Look at at verse number 18. Look at verse number 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them and said, you guys are a mess. Get your act together. No. No. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power. When you're weak, when you're unsure, when you're doubting, when you think I can't do it, and you're right, you need 
to be encouraged. And these are some number of disciples who are discouraged even in the presence of the Lord. And he draws them close. And he says, all power is given unto me. I'm here. I will be with you, he says at the end of the verse number 20. What I have is available. Death's been defeated. We can defeat anything else that's going to come around. You think that person is too intimidating? You think it may not be worth it? You think it might be too hard? You think the rejection might be too painful? I'm with you. I've got power, and power that I have is power that is available to you. So as we, as we consider this important task that we're to do, it's easy to get focused on action and forget that at some point, maybe even right now, some of you, you deal with doubt related to this need to share Jesus Christ. Somebody cared enough about you to do that with you. Will you care enough about that to do it with somebody else? You are part of the team. I'm on that team. There'll be people in your churches that are on that team, maybe people in your family. You're part of God's solution to answering the sin problem with the gospel. It's a mission that he's left us here to do. Are you committed to being a part of that mission and to doing what he has asked you to do? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that you are such a loving God. A God who first would sacrifice his own son for our sake. But the Lord would empower us, help us, even deal with the great struggle of doubt sometimes as we seek to be ambassadors, witnesses for you. Father, I don't know who the face is that maybe some of these people see when they think about someone they know who needs Christ. And maybe they're doubting whether it's worth it to try to talk to them again, whether it's worth it to try to reach out to them, whether it'll make a difference. Lord, would you remind him, as Paul reminds us, he planted, Apollos watered. God, you give the increase. God, would you bless them as they serve here, as they focus on their studies. Lord, give them a great finish. Help them to finish well for your glory. But Lord, would you as well help them to embrace this task, this mission that you've left us here to do, and to be willing to do their part. And Lord, when they struggle to turn to you, when they see others struggling, to point them to you. And Lord, together, God, would you give us a great harvest for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.